John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 28 to 37 is our focus for this morning, which actually contains the shortest verse in the Bible. You think that would make the sermon shorter, too? Probably not. You know, when I was in a creative writing class, um, we were told to write a very short poem, and he says, don't be deceived, the shortest poems are actually the most complex Uh, Same goes for verses, by the way. A verse which is two words long actually makes up the title of this morning's sermon, Jesus Wept. It seems like it doesn't fit. Because in the next passage, spoiler alert, he rises the man from the dead that he's weeping about. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. John chapter 11, verses 28 to 37 You know, as we look at the world around us, much of it is confusing. Much of it is, at times, as we have already mentioned this morning, uh, given to despair and even despondency to those who wonder what is going on. How is it that this world is meant to glorify God? And if, if Christ has come as the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world... When exactly does that occur? Because there's so many of the pains of this world that do seek to undo us. Today's passage addresses one such pain, and that is the unavoidable, irreproachable, unsolvable issue of death. So many in churches have tried to weaken the sting of death by thinking about it rightly. Well, that only works if you haven't lost somebody and know the sting that death still brings to it, even in the midst of hope. When you lose somebody close to you, Even if they are a Christian, which does lessen it a little bit, but then in some ways it makes it harder too because there is yet more of a relationship there that's lost and interrupted. You have a complete flood of all manner of emotions, don't you? Most of us know that it's not just an issue of sorrow. There are issues of regret. There are issues of anger. And there are issues of frustration and helpless feelings. All of those are natural. And all of those are good. Because it means we are thinking of death as what it is, the enemy. Death is not good news. And many, having tried to lessen its blow, have oversold the reality of it. Death is not our friend that sets us free from this mortal coil. Death is the enemy that sin purchases. Life is our friend. And resurrection is our hope, not death. Resurrection is our hope. And Christ here will remind us of this. And so too, I hope, will the way in which he interacts with the people here. Two weeks ago, 
We spent a time dealing with the disciples' reaction to Jesus going and visiting Lazarus and risking his life. We saw a very unexpected response by Thomas. Last week when we were here, we addressed the issue of Mary's response to Jesus' arrival to Bethany and how unexpected part of that is. It's kind of remarkable that different aspects of these characters, we pay attention to later stories about them, but hardly ever in this story because the miracle is so overpoweringly glorious in what happens. But today we're going to focus on Jesus' response and his interactions to the death of Lazarus and the sufferings of those who are surrounding him. And next week, at the raising of Lazarus, we will be excuse me, focusing on Lazarus's response and engagement with his experience there. There's a reason I'm doing this. It's because John does it. He focuses in on different characters, one after another, and he makes us address the reality from our own perspective. Where would we find ourselves in the middle of all of this? Would we find ourselves with the disciples who go, Jesus, don't go to Bethany and risk your life. What is that worth? Or would we find ourselves in the feet of Thomas, who says, you know what? If he's going to go, we're going to go with him. Let's go die with him. A gung-ho, go and attack the world. Or would we find ourselves with Mary, who, anticipating Jesus' arrival, goes out and with a very natural frustration, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Something that Mary will say as soon as Jesus comes to Bethany as well. And today, Jesus' response is one that has caused a great deal of confusion for a lot of people. And you will usually find sermons about Jesus' reaction to Lazarus' death are typically on one side and extreme or the other. On one side, he is just sad because people there are sad. On the other side, he is... Uh, you will find people that focus on his indignancy, almost like he is angry with people for being sad. They should just be happy. I have literally heard sermons like this. Um, the reality is Jesus is on both of these sides, both sorrowing and indignant, but the goal is different. And I want to show you it because it's one of these things that we rarely ever talk about uh, because it is such a confusing thing for us to see about Jesus. Let me ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read this passage and delve into it. We will begin one verse earlier with Mary's wonderful confession. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her, also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also kept this man from dying? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this passage. Nearly 2,000 years since it happened, almost 2,000 years since it is written down, and you have preserved these words throughout this history that we may see them this morning. And by divine appointment, they alight upon our ears this day. Father, so we pray that you give us ears to hear. You give us eyes to see your gracious gospel in the midst of such difficulty. We pray, Father, not for comfort alone, for comfort can be fleeting, but Father, we pray for your grace in time of need, which is both comforting and encouraging We pray for it, Father, this morning, that the truth of your word would be illumined to our hearts. We thank you for the inspiration of it, its reliability. Father, we pray that it change our minds and our hearts this day to become more like Christ by the power of heaven, not by the power of our own hands or our own minds. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. It almost seems like A weird part of the story. Everything was flowing pretty well. Jesus hears about the death of Lazarus. He waits two days, and then he comes through. We learn about the disciples' resistance to this, them uh, giving themselves up to it. Fine, we'll go. If we die, we die. So be it, says Thomas. They come towards Bethany. Mary runs out and uh, in one way greets, in another way mourns, in another way is almost frustrated but expresses some deal of faith that we rarely even apply to her character, and that is, if the Lord had been there, Lazarus might not have died. And Jesus gives her a remarkable lesson on the reality of death while following Christ. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This this hopelessness that sits at the end of every physical life, even if we die, where are we? Safe with the Lord. What does that mean? I don't know. Beyond what it says, that's all we know. God has promised that we are with him. What does our experience mean? It means that we will be with him. What does that look like? What does that feel like? I wish I could tell you. But what we are told is that as we live in this world, as we suffer in this world, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that even though death come upon our physical selves, yet do we live. And even death itself in the physical will be undone. For at the end of the age... All that sleep in the dust of the ground will rise, some to life and everlasting so, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Thus is the promise of Daniel 12. Thus is the promise even from the lips of Christ. In the midst of all of this, Jesus gives these promises even to Mary to saying, your brother will rise again. Don't you believe that? 
And she attends it to exactly where all of our minds will go. Yes, I believe at the end of the age, he will rise again. Using the future tense, the future tense, and something that we play up at a lot of funerals on purpose and with good measure. Our focus should always be the promise of God even yet fully revealed. But there is something greater about Christ that we tend to miss. Because he doesn't say, I will be the resurrection and the life, but I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, he is living. You say, that's a tremendous promise. That's a tremendous promise, an extraordinary claim. To say that you are the God, not only of the dead, but of the living. To say that you are the God of those who have already passed. To say that they are with you. One would imagine that we would need proof on the level of such an extraordinary claim in order to understand it on any level whatsoever. And so you would assume that the narrative would go straight to the resurrection of Lazarus, but it doesn't. A hiatus, a parenthesis, if you will, of this morning's passage. Jesus walking to Bethany is met by Mary and talks about how he is currently the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him, even if they die, they are living. And then Jesus stays there outside of the city limits of Bethany while Mary runs back to the house. And he just sits there. He doesn't go to the house to console Mary. He has already spoken to Martha. He doesn't go and talk to all the others that knew Lazarus, that were all personal friends of one another. He stays outside of Bethany. And it says, when Martha has made this great confession... She went and called her sister Mary and spoke to her in private. The teacher is here and is calling for you. What would be going through your mind if you were Mary? Well, it says it right in the passage. I know what power he holds. I know what he was able to do in healing people. But now, it doesn't seem that anything's going to change. Even the people that were mourning with Mary said the same thing. Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind stop this man from dying? Notice the experience of their miracles so far in Bethany. They had only ever seen Jesus prevent death. They have never seen him undo it. And the expectation, both from Martha's lips and from Mary's lips and from the lips of those who are mourning with them, is the time is over for miracles because we know the great unsolvable problem has happened. Lazarus has died. There's no coming back from that. By this time, it's fully well and done. And everyone regrets that Jesus didn't come sooner. Everyone regrets and says, you could have prevented this. You could have stopped that. And the only one that has said anything about his ability even today is Martha. Who says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet I know 
that whatever you ask of God even now, he will listen to you. Nobody else expresses that. Not even Mary expresses that, who is usually pushed up as a much more faithful witness to these things. A testament to the fact that we all have our strengths and we all have our roles. Verse 29 When Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. He just sits down and waits for Mary to show up. The Jews who were with her in her house that were consoling her, these would be extended family, this would be friends, and these would also be professional mourners, which is something our society knows nothing about. Um, uh, If you're not aware, uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, there were actually people that you would hire that would mourn with you. An interesting thing. We don't think about mourning that way. We think about mourning as a very private practice. Uh, they did not. They viewed it as a very public aspect of mourning the realities of evil in the world and so forth. And so they viewed it as a much more public thing and actually would actually, just the same way as we would pay a funeral service to handle things at end of life, they paid mourning services to handle after death. And they would come and they would sit with you might be able to learn something from that, to be perfectly honest. By the way, it puts a whole other spin on our responsibility to one another to, uh, uh, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We're actually given that role in one another's lives. Anyway, let's keep going with this. So when the Jews who were with her in her house that were consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb and weep there. Fine, we'll all go cry at the tomb then. Wherever she goes, whatever she needs, we'll do this. She's not going to the tomb, not yet. She's going out to meet Jesus. So imagine the confusion on their minds. They're going down the road, the tomb is over here, but going out of Bethany is over here, and she just books it out of town. Looking around, going, what, how? She knows where the tomb is, I'm sure. So where is she going then? Let's go and follow her. When Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, and she says the same thing that people excoriate Martha for. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and all the Jews who had come with her also weeping, here comes that passage. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he asked them where they have laid him. We get on dangerous ground when we theorize about Jesus' emotions. I don't want to theorize. I want to stay on safe ground. And so I'm going to be exactly where the passage takes us. Because many people have read into this passage much more and also much less than what it is saying. And so let's just go with what it says. I usually find the safety, even when it's not being overly clear, I find safety in just what it is saying. The response is specifically to the weeping of those who have lost somebody. Yes, there are sermons who look at this and say Jesus was greatly troubled, almost agitated is the term, uh, indignant, almost to the point of anger. And people have made the connection to say, well, maybe Jesus is angry at them for weeping so much. They're too sad. I'll just go ahead and just spell that one. That is not what it's saying. 
On the other side, people make this connection and say, he being so deeply moved into his spirit, he's just weeping, he has no idea that God is about to work a miracle. Believe me or not, there's sermons on all sides of this kind of stuff. So, believe me when I say, if you're going to stick with the text, that's going to be the safest place to go rather than our expectations of what's going on here. Because to be perfectly honest, this story does not go the way I expect it. I would not have, if I was John, settled down and say, you know what I'm going to write about? I'm going to write about Jesus crying about this. And him getting angry. Because he says both of them. But what is it connected to? That's the most important part. What things do we have going on here? We have death and we have mourning about it. When Jesus saw her weeping, Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, what was his first response? He was deeply moved and greatly troubled. Two responses for two things. In one of them, we usually in our translations try to make it a little bit softer because it's a little hard for us to imagine being both angry and sad at the same moment. But let's let the words stand as they are. Him being deeply moved is to the point almost of anger. And, stick with me, and he is also greatly troubled, which is a broad terminology for extraordinarily sad. There are two responses in how Jesus interacts with this, and there are two things that have occurred. One is death, the other is mourning. Which one goes with which one is going to answer a great deal of questions. If you show up and see this in the text, some of the things about it are going to be frustrating. Some of it are unclear, and so it helps us to clear it up. So let's do this. There's two things that have happened. One, death has occurred. And if our theology is good and we are paying attention to the story of the scriptures as we've been reading them, is death a good thing or a bad thing? Is death of the Lord or is it of the enemy? Is it the result of good works or of sin? It's a very simplistic part of this. Sin leads to death. We weren't supposed to die. We were supposed to live with God, immortal, eating of the tree of life. That was the plan. What happened? Sin and death. Which rightly brings what? The anger of the Lord, does it not? Sometimes we don't like to attach that to Jesus. But it's here in the text. He is both angry with the fact that death has occurred. Because that is the outcome of sin. Lazarus was not a perfect person. If he was a perfect person, he wouldn't have died. He wouldn't have had to have his life hidden with Christ. What do we have? Instead, Jesus is both deeply indignant. In fact, there's so many ways to translate this, but almost every single one of them has to do with an almost rage towards something that has occurred. So either we are left with Jesus is angry that people are sad, which is unthinkably foolish, or we are left with Jesus is angry that death has occurred. You're not left with anything else. And you're told and solved in the very next word which one it is. He also is greatly troubled and responds with that greatly troubledness with the exact same way that the people weeping are and he weeps. What do we learn from Christ about this? 
his reaction to death is twofold. Even though he knows he's just about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Even though he knows that even for those who will not be risen from him during his ministry, resurrection will occur. What is his response? But sorrow. Death should never be rejoiced in. It is not the great savior of our suffering being over. Death is not the end. And it is not our friend. Death is the enemy. It is to be reviled. It is to be overcome. But we don't have the power to overcome it, do we? This is why the people that were standing nearby saying, this man has overcome so many maladies. He's healed people who couldn't see, and he's given them sight. Could not have he prevented death? And what we're about to learn about Christ is not only was he able to prevent death, he was able to reverse it. And not just able because he has this ability, but able to do it because of who he is. And so then the question sits on our mind, even probably a harder question. How is it the resurrection and the life himself weeps in the face of death? Do we have that view of death? I hope we do. Or when it occurs, it breaks our heart, even as Christians, and I would say, especially as Christians. Because we see the interruption of a relationship that is designed for eternity be interrupted. Sometimes for decades. That is enormously difficult. It is enormously difficult to get our minds around and even our souls around to understand how is it we are supposed to interact with a world in which death reigns when we are hooked up to the one from whom life comes. Pulled between two worlds. And what John is doing with us here is he's using that natural reaction that we have to death and showing us that Christ is right there experiencing the same. I can tell you in the loss of people close to us, you will not simply feel sad. There are times where you will feel desperate. There are times where you will feel regret. There are times where, yes, you will feel righteous anger towards this even occurring. Not blaming God, but seeing sin as the problem. That's a good thing. Being frustrated that it occurs. And then going to God with those frustrations. We see examples of it all over the Psalms and all over the epistles of the scriptures. And here we see it expressed in Christ himself. And he goes to the tomb with full knowledge of what he is about to do and there weeps for his friend. Sorrow is not weakness. Tears are not weakness. They're signifiers of the depth of a relationship lost, if even for a time.
And if Christ can weep when he knows he will rise this man from the dead in a few minutes, then when we lose Christians close to us for decades, why is it we try to shove that down too quick? It ought to break our hearts. It ought to make us hate sin. And the result that sin brings into our lives to end it before we should. We were not designed for death. But we've seen it so much that we think maybe it's part of the design of us. No, we were designed for life eternal. One day we will know that. But we're not there. It was kind of hard writing this sermon this week, I'm not going to lie. So I had one direction I was taking it, and then I reversed that direction and took it a whole nother one. Because I realized, even in the loss of my mother this past spring, I was trying to get over it too quick. Maybe if I maybe if you don't let yourself feel something, you can heal quicker. That's not the answer. And if I knew resurrection, the great resurrection was happening tomorrow, would we still miss those that we've lost? Yeah, we should. Jesus knows Lazarus personally in this life and he knows him eternally in heaven. Lazarus is already absent from the body and present with the Lord. And Jesus is here weeping because here we have a man that he loved that is in this state of intermediacy where he was ripped out of the body that God made for him. It is a source of great anger, I would imagine. He didn't design us to die like that. He designed us to live with him. And to see that, it's not to say that Jesus is simply so angry that this happened as if it's irrational rage. No, it is focused. Because he knows what the enemy is. He knows the enemy is death. He knows the enemy is evil. He knows it's going to unravel so many people's lives. He is not okay with that. He is the Lamb of God through which sin will be eradicated from this world and death will be thrown into the lake of fire with it. I say this at so many funerals and I have to remind myself of it constantly. Death is not our friend. It is not the answer to our sufferings. Patience is the answer to our suffering and life is our friend. And even though death will swallow us up, let us hear the words of Christ to Martha. Even though we die, yet will we live. Even if this physical life should come to the end, we will not 
be utterly perished. No, our life is hidden with Christ, and we are with him. No matter what that experience looks like or feels like, do not pull your solidity from people claiming near-death experiences. Pull your solidity from what Christ has promised here. And see the wisdom of a God who cries with his people. So many times we mix up faith with stoicism. This idea that we can just, the world won't affect me anymore because I believe on God so much. Christ believed on the Father more than any of us all put together. And here he weeps at this. And so should we. Let us not be like the crowd who stood by in the next verse. Going simply, see how much he loved him, and then excoriating him on the point. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also prevent this man from dying? You see, that's not the same thing that Martha and Mary had said. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. This is... Why is he crying? He could have stopped this. I have met many Christians who look at God that way in the midst of their losses. God could have stopped this. Why didn't he? He could have had them go in for a a checkup earlier. A billboard that reminded them. He could have done something about it. And yet here I sit in the midst of my loss. God didn't stop it. And I'm angry with God. That is not the right response. It is a tempting response at times. And here we see them saying the same things. If he opened the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he have prevented this great evil? Why is he crying about it? He could have prevented it. The answer to that question is actually quite simple. It's not just that God could have prevented it. It is that God had purpose in it. Remember how this passage started. What does he say to his disciples? I'm glad I wasn't there with Lazarus so that you may believe and God may be glorified. There is purpose in the evils that overtake us, sorrowful and furiously angry as they may be, There is purpose in what comes our path. What would we be left with if it was not so? We would be with a purposeless, meaningless evil that God refuses to do anything about. Is that really what we aim at? Is that really what Scripture says? Or does Scripture say, even in the greatest evils, God will be victorious? Even in the greatest evils of a betrayal of one of his disciples later that next week, even at the abandon of all of his disciples, save one, to the foot of the cross, even to the abandon of all of those who have been following him, not just 12, but upwards of 70, left to himself to suffer and die. 
at the hands of Herod, the hands of Pilate, of the Sanhedrin, and all the other sins that led up to the greatest salvation and the greatest death that anyone's ever seen. This is what John is preparing us to witness. Death is not good, save Christ. The reality, though, is it's only good because of what God is doing with it. The answer to your sorrow, my friends, is not to get over it. It's to go headlong through it. And to travel that vicious road with those who love you and with Christ, for he has gone down that road too. We have great losses in our lives. And Christ is not unaware of this. And God is not forgetful that we are made of dust. We have great sufferings in our life. And rather than for us to become indignant and say, why is it that God could have prevented this and yet he let it happen to me? My friends, there is no joy on that road. May I encourage you instead to thank God for every day because it comes as a gift. You may not understand why certain things overtake you. In fact, I can almost promise you, you will not understand why. But the Lord promises the purpose in it is his. Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A glory that by comparison, our sufferings are not even worthy to be on the scales to compare them. That is how God speaks of it. He said, well, that means then that it would work patience in us rather than answers. That's correct. It will work patience in us, not answers. And that is why I would encourage any of us who are enduring such losses to be patient. Jesus could have raised Lazarus four days beforehand from afar. And instead he waits two days to travel. He meets Martha on the road, and then waits there for Mary to come out and meet him as well. And then he comes to the tomb, and instead of commanding Lazarus immediately to come out, he takes time to sorrow. That is a man who knows patience and the value of such sorrows and the value of seeing life as meaningful and death as the enemy. Let us instead find ourselves not in the response of those in verse 37 saying he could have prevented this to say he is here with us, weeping with us, and he is the resurrection and he is the life. Those who we have lost, whose presence we do not feel anymore, are not dead. Even if they die, they live. And their life is hidden with Christ. You too, friend, who have trusted in Christ when you face your own grave. Even if you die, you will live. 
What that experience is like, I cannot tell you. I'm only 40. I have not experienced it. And when I experience it, I won't be able to return to tell you. But what I can say is this. If we look at the grave as the great answer of our lives, we will not be able to interact with our life well. We will just wait to die so that we can go to heaven. Let me give you the biblical perspective instead. Death is the enemy. We will avoid it because it is evil. And we will seek to preserve this life not so that we can live it for our own glory, but so that we can glorify our God in our bodies until the day that he has appointed to take us home. And when he takes us home, we know that even if we die, yet will we live. And when we are in the presence of him who lives forever, we too will live forever and await yet another day. Patience is a virtue that will join you in heaven. We will wait yet another day when we will be resurrected into our own bodies again and live on this earth with our Savior. That is the hope of the Christian. That is the center of all of these things. Not saying our suffering is over, thanks be to God. It's to say our suffering is with us. Thanks be to God, he walks through us with them, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And our life is with him no matter what comes our path. What can man do to me? I fear him who can destroy body and soul. Don't fear those who can just harm the body. What power is that? Do not dominate yourself with a fear of death. And do not excoriate yourself or allow yourself to be corrected when people tell you not to sorrow simply because we have hope. The scriptures never tell us not to sorrow. They say sorrow as those who hope. Let us take solace in the words of Christ. Here he weeps, and so should we. And while death is the enemy, death will be defeated. Thanks be to God. Let's promise ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Christ's response here. What a difficult thing to wrap our head around, that he is both mournful at the death of his friend, angry at the enemy for destroying the life he created. Father, may we take the same tack May we place our hope and glory only in your promises. Here, specifically, these promises that even if we die, those who believe in Christ will live. We thank you for that promise. It is great, it is deep, and it is hard to remember. We pray that you remind us of that. We thank you that in the face, even of resurrection, that very hour, our Lord Christ still mourned with us who can only see death partly. 
We pray, Father, for great comfort. We pray for cheerful hearts in the midst of our sorrow as well. May our anger be directed rightly, and may our hope likewise be directed rightly. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.